0: As the uh, transition kind of goes on we're going to be doing more songs, but we're glad that you know we were able to to, um, to to do worship here together and it's it's so powerful and meaningful just to see uh, people here and and hearing hearing you sing and so all of you guys at home just know you know all this time I've been talking to a camera and so if I'm not looking at you or if we take different camera angles. Hopefully you can keep hearing. I'm trying actually to do the opposite now. I'm trying not to look at the camera. I'm trying to look at, the, you know, people who are here. So you're going to see me moving around. I'm not sitting on my, you know, stool up here or, or all. And that's, again, just part of, you know, part of the, the difference, the transition that we're going to make. Um, so we're, we're, we're back in the book of Ruth. And and. We, we're following this story, again, this story written about, you know, 2,500, 2,600 years ago about events that maybe occurred about 3,000 uh, years ago. And the whole series has been on, you know, the, really the centrality of God's grace, about how important God's grace has always been among his people, that it's not just God's grace received, but it's God's grace that's expressed to others who, who are around us. And so, you know, we, we, we've, we've been reading that, and we've been looking at it, and, um, and, and trying to see this in the story and see how the, the community of faith is, 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 is kind of bound together by this, this grace. And so we're, we're going to go get to kind of the, the, the mid part of this story, and you can see the title of the story says, you know, there is a Redeemer, and, and, and we're going we're gonna to talk about that. But before we get there, I wanted to uh, help us understand that this story obviously isn't just about events from 3,000 years ago. This story parallels uh, our own story and our need for a Redeemer, and so... You know, to, to help people understand it, I wanted people to understand, you know, what that word redeem is all about. You know, we use it in church, we have it in songs, we sing it, we read it in the Bible, but what is that word really all about? And, and it actually has to do with, with slavery. And so my question to you is, you know, if you were to think about your own, you know, life, what are things you know aren't good for you that you just can 't live without you know they 're not you know that whether it 's a habit, whether it 's a you know something you eat, something you drink, something you smoke, you know it 's not good for you, you know you know it's 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 it 's harmful in some way, but you just can 't live without it, and um, almost to the point that you've either developed this huge sense of denial or acceptance. You're like, yep, I know this is killing me, but I'm, I'm just going to keep doing it. Or you've kind of decided like, no, um, all those scientists are wrong. All that research is wrong. This is really okay, right? Um, you know, I I was I posted on, um, you know, on Facebook yesterday this, this, this thing, which is just saying something to the effect of that, you know, what part of this pandemic shutdown has done is it's forced us to live with things that we thought we couldn't live without. There's so many things that either we do, activities we do, habits we have, you know, you know, things we just feel we have to do, and we, we, we've lived without them. You know, we've lived without... You know sports you know we've we've lived without people being able to go you know shopping we've lived without you know um, you know families running their kids from from ballet to soccer to basketball to all these things we've we've lived without so many things that we thought we couldn't live without we thought this is This is what it means to be a, you know, to be an American. Or this is what it means to be an adult. Or this is what it means to be a family. And we had all these things that we thought we couldn't live without. And we've lived without them. And you know what? We're okay. I love baseball. I love to play fantasy baseball. But you know what? I'm okay. I'm not a slave to, like, to, like, you know, every day having to check the baseball scores, and having to check in on my favorite team, and 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 all these things that, that take my time. You know, I, I I'm not obsessed with with you know all these things about sports that I thought like that 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 would that made life so meaningful and so you know real or fun. And and I look. Like, the ending of my post was, we've lived without these things. How quickly will we become slaves to them again? God's granted us this time where he's, he's, he's kind of broken all those habits. He's broken all those things that we think, like, I have to do this, I have to do that. And this is why I can't do these other things. When will we, we become slaves to them again? and especially those things that really aren't aren't helpful you know i i remember back when i taught i was i was helping to teach a sunday school class at one of our churches in texas and it was a sunday school class for for families parents with children who were in preschool and and in that time you know the you know we would we were teaching and and you know we came to this understanding that one of the things that we didn't really have is we didn't really have Christian community. Oh, we came to Sunday school every Sunday and we went to worship, but we didn't have Christian community. We really didn't have um, relationships that were much more than just, hey, we see each other, you know, once a week. And we started to talk about it. And what we all realized is, who has time for that? You know, we were working full time, some of us two jobs. We had kids, you know, and, you know, we're activities, things to do f- you know, around the house, everything else. It's like, who has time for Christian community? And yet we all realized that that's what we were called to be. We all knew that that was what you know one of the first things that when we become christians that we need to do is we ha- we need to have a healthy christian community and all of us many of us who had been to seminary many of us who had served in churches were coming to this conclusion that we can't because we don't have time so we at least recognized our slavery but None of us were willing to be free from it. I think the pandemic has has helped us. It's helped us realize there's a lot of things that we thought were so important that we couldn't live without that we actually can. And maybe, just maybe, especially among believers, it will help us say, you know what? Instead of going right back to the slavery, to those things, why don't we start investing and being the community of faith and giving that time to each other. I don't know. But I do know this, that we're not alone. We we live in a world, a world that becomes comfortable to, in, in its own slavery. That everybody serves a master. Everybody is enslaved to something. Something is, is, is is telling you or, or you know, making you do what you want to do, and, and you're like, no, 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 that's not true. That's not true. You know, I'm my own person. I make my own decisions. And I guarantee you that every decision you make is being influenced by things you know or you don't know. Companies spend billions of dollars to not just know you, but to know how to present things to you in a way that you will buy them. Right? You, you, you go to the store, certain things, you, you immediately go, that's better than that. And you don't even know why. You just go, that's better than that. Have you really done a comparison of those things? Maybe sometimes you have, but a lot of times you haven't. You've been actually told that that's better than that. There's a whole thing called um, that, that stores do, it's, it's, and, and companies pay for this, by the way. It's how products are placed on shelves. So if you go to a bookstore, which they still do exist, they haven't yet gone the way of the dinosaur, but you know, if you go to a bookstore, if your books are on the lower shelves, doesn't mean it's worse. It just means your publisher didn't pay money for it to be on the upper shelves. And if your book is turned with the spine out, it's, it's because the other person paid to have their book turned this way so you could see the cover. you even know that? Do you even know that even in the stores you go in, they're manipulating you? Some of you probably know this, that the things that they put right by the checkout counters in the in the grocery stores. They have a word for it. You know what, the, what that's called? Impulse buying. Because they know there's certain products, if they put right there, you will impulsively go grab that stick of gum or that package of gum or that candy or the, you know, no, hopefully none of you do this, but the National Enquirer or something like that, right? Like you will just, that, you'll just impulsively buy it. You know, you're, you're there, in that checkout stand for a couple minutes and you'll impulsively buy those things. That's just low grade stuff. That's not even the more sophisticated things. And that's not even the other things that we become slaveries to, we become enslaved to. You know, things like addictions or things like that we become within our emotions, that we become dependent upon. There's a lot of people that, that, it's, that it's found out that for whatever reason, they develop you know, a certain very harmful, you know, their self-harm ways of thinking about themselves, but they've developed it because it's the way that they can somehow have some sense of, of identity or control over their, you know, over, over their lives. And they know it, but they can't escape it. They're, they're slaves to it, and you can even talk to. and I've talked to people who've been in these situations, and they'll say they know it, but they can't stop. Sometimes it's a it's a relationship. You know, it's a a boyfriend, girlfriend, a spouse. Sometimes it's it's an idea of what we think is the highest, you know, the highest thing in life, or what's going to bring us satisfaction we've talked here about this church about how some people are enslaved to happiness and entertainment they think the purpose in life is to be as happy as possible we live in a world in a world that's increasingly comfortable in its in in its slavery well we're going to get back to that we're going to get back to the the idea of the redeemer but before we do um, we're going to go to the text, and the text, the text is talking about we're getting to this point where all of a sudden Naomi is going to take action. And the question is, is, why is she taking action now? The way that the story's been presented to us is that, is that this wasn't like when Naomi was way back in Moab, she thought, like, I've got a plan. I'm going to get one of my daughters-in-law, maybe both, to go with me back and we're going to get back to, um, to Judah and I know there's a couple of my, you know, single bachelor relatives that would, you know, really need a wife and can be kind of the one that helps, you know, be our kinsman redeemer. So that's, what we're, that's my plan. That's not how the story is presented. The story is not presented that she even knows that the field that Ruth goes to is one of her relatives. We know the story tells us that, but Ruth, do- I mean Naomi, doesn't know, and then certainly Ruth doesn't know. In fact, the the story is presented with Naomi not expecting anything good f- from God anymore, so much so that she wants to be called bitter. She wants to be called Mara. So she doesn't expect anything good from God. Nothing. She's expecting to, to just kind of eke out an existence. Thankfully, Ruth is there to help her. And hopefully nothing happens to Ruth. And that's, that, that's it. And of course, at first, when Ruth comes home with so much, you know, so much grain, at first it's like, oh, well, you know, it's still going to be hard as long as as long as, you know, that guy who owns that field is, is cool with what Ruth's doing, but it's a lot better now, so that's good. But then eventually she, she, real, she, she learns from Ruth that, that Boaz is one of her relatives, that the field that Ruth is at is one of her, not closest relatives, but a close relative. So you might think, like, well, why didn't she just start, you know, doing something then? You know, they had arranged marriages back then. Why didn't she just approach Boaz and, and say whatever? And and there is some thinking about that, about, about you know, why did they wait as long as they waited? And the story doesn't really tell us. It doesn't really tell us. But I think it's important to to think a little bit about it because... Um, the best guess that, you know, Old Testament scholars have on this is that, is that the waiting is, is largely for the mourning period of Ruth having lost her husband. And we're not 100% sure of what the customs were in this time. But we know that almost every culture, there's a, there's a mourning period. We don't have an official one, okay? And, but we have kind of an unofficial one. Like, if I died, and right after my funeral, Cheryl got married, you guys would be like, hmm, maybe we should have an autopsy done. You know, you guys would think, like, that's just kind of weird, right? I mean... Because it, we have this kind of period that we think, and and if, because we don't have an official one, you know, uh, people just it, it it can cause problems, right? Someone could within three or four months they're dating again, or um, and then you know people get upset. Sometimes it can be you know four years later, and somebody starts dating again, and and people still get upset because there's no real set period. We don't have one that says you should wait this amount of time. You know, three hours is probably a little too short. So, uh, but, but you know, we don't really have one, but we do have one, even if it's not set and official. And so we, we you know, what's, what could very well be happening here is is they're, they're waiting. It's clear from the beginning that there is some kind of connection between Boaz and Naomi, although at first it doesn't seem like it's any kind of like romantic thing, that it's more like Boaz respects what, um, what Ruth has done and that, uh, that, that, that he wants to you know, bless her because of what she's done. In fact, we're going to see in his response that he's kind of surprised He's surprised when Ruth does this kind of scandalous thing and, and ask him to marry her. That, that just wasn't done. That's crazy. But he's surprised by it, not because it was surprising in a scandalous way, but surprised in the fact that, you know, he didn't really think that was something that was on the table for her. Um, so there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's this waiting period that could very well have been having to do with, with, with mourning and, and taking the time, and, and we know that in, in a lot of cultures, including um, Jewish culture and perhaps in Israelite culture of this time, that there would have been an outward sign of it. Maybe the color that uh, Ruth was wearing, it could have just been some other way that indicated she was in a period of of mourning grieving how long that would last kind of depends um, we don't really know we know in in some situations it could be up to a year of period of mourning so we we know that there's some 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 waiting that takes place and then we get to chapter 3 because something else is happening where where this this kind of this relationship has kind of continued where it's, this, it's, it's a relationship where Naomi and Ruth are being provided for by Boaz, but also by Ruth going to work. And that's been good. And Naomi has like peace of mind that, that Ruth is being protected. She's being taken care of. And so we don't know how much time has passed. Maybe, maybe weeks, maybe months, maybe a year. But it says... In chapter three, then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash therefore and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known Um, to the man, until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. So here's the picture, you know, some people get in their minds that, that, that this is some kind of like, you know, like she's, making some kind of sexual offer to, to Boaz. And there, there could be that kind of thing, but really the way that the story's told, and we don't have time to unpack it this morning. You can, you can come to Wednesday night when we do a, a deeper Bible study on these things, and we'll talk about it. But, but it, it, the way that the story's t- told, it doesn't seem to be the case. Because Boaz, Ruth, Naomi, they're all presented as these, these upright people that want to follow the, the, the covenant, that they're, they're not just you know conveniently following the covenant when it suits them, and then when it doesn't, you know they're going to kind of abandon it. Plus, you also have to keep in mind that Boaz isn't by himself, you know. He's he's there, and there's, there's probably other men who've been, who've been working. And they worked until it just got dark, and then they had dinner and slept, because they're going to get up in the morning and, and work again. So the, the, the idea is that it's not like it's just, you know, there's Boaz up in this barn all by himself, and here comes Ruth. Okay, that's really not the picture at all. And so, we, 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 we see this thing that, that on a certain level can seem kind of, again, scandalous. But it's not scandalous in the way we would think of it as being that way. Now, at first, before people are going to hear the whole story, it might have it appeared scandalous. But here's the bigger thing that, that is scandalous about this story. Remember, this story is about the time of the judges. And what we know in the time of the judges is that during that time, people, the people of Israel had this up and down love-hate relationship with the covenant. Sometimes they follow it, sometimes they abandon it and go into idolatry give in to the pagan cultures around them. That was, that was very, very common in Judges. So what's scandalous is the fact that all these characters are keeping the covenant. They're honoring the covenant. It's not that Ruth is doing something that, that's, you know, that's immoral. And the same thing would have been true if this story, when it's eventually written, Okay, and it's probably part of oral tradition for you know, a couple centuries, and then finally it's in the form we have it written down, it was probably the same thing was scandalous then. Here are these people who are so committed to the covenant that even though it would make just total sense not to go through all this process, it would make total sense, it's obvious, Boaz and Ruth, just get together already. Just get married. Just do this but that they're following the covenant, even when it can be somewhat risky and they're not sure what the outcome will be. They're going to follow it anyways. And that would have been scandalous in the time of the kings because in the time of the kings, the only difference between the time of the kings and the time of the judges is that there's kings instead of judges. The people of Israel are still doing the same thing, following the covenant, abandoning the covenant, following the covenant, abandoning the covenant. In fact, they go through the near the end of the, of, um, of before the, uh, the Babylon conquers the southern tribes, Judah, at that time, they had abandoned the covenant so long that they, they had lost the books of the law. They had lost the the what they considered the the Bible, the first five books of, of what we call the Old Testament. They'd lost it. And then when it was finally found, they didn't know what it was. So here's people living by a covenant that they had lost and forgotten. Well, the first point we need to see here is that God's plan is not always obvious. Naomi had no idea that this was how God was going to work. She had no idea this was how God was, pro- was going to provide, uh, nor, did, nor did Ruth. And, and again, we know that. We see that the way that Naomi is presented her, her mindset. And at first it seems like, well, you know, now that she knows he's a kinsman redeemer, well, of course, this, that's how the stories should turn out. But there's a few problems here. One is, Boaz is older. And in this culture, you know, it's, you know, the the, the young respect the, the older. The young doesn't initiate. The older initiates. The second thing is, he's a good Israelite. Ruth is a Moabite. And if he's following the covenant in every way, what makes you think he would violate it to marry someone who's from another culture when they were told to not marry people from other cultures? Two problems. And the, three, the third problem is, you know, he's this kind of important man in their society. He's this, this, land own, this landowner, this master, and she's a servant. And of course, you could... Throw into that whole thing too, you know, he's the man, and in that patriarchal society, that again, he's in so many ways considered superior. If anything were going to happen, it would be, um, you know, by him initiating it, not her. So Ruth is coming from this, you know, Naomi's asking her to do something that potentially could be really embarrassing if not worse. She's this foreign young woman and now she's about to go and ask this man to marry her. So, that doesn't seem like that would be the plan. That's not like the plan we would come up with. You know, our plan might be something and maybe Naomi thought this, maybe Boaz thought this, Maybe he thought, like, you know what, there's a lot of young men here, and some of them are also relatives. That would make more sense. It would make more sense for, for that to happen. You know, what's, you know, what's Ruth want to, why does she want to hang out with an old dude like me? That just, it just makes more sense. It makes more sense to, you know, to, to think about a younger relative, and have a younger relative marry her. And maybe Naomi thought that. Maybe Naomi thought like, oh, this is good. She's going to Boaz's field and, you know, surely there's some nephews or, you know, other people and cousins that are around there. Would have made a lot more sense. But let's let me tell you something about the way God works. The way God works is that his plan's not always obvious. In fact, in case you don't get this, the parallel between Boaz being the kinsman redeemer comes to Jesus Christ being our redeemer. And the way God wants to redeem us is, is not, it's, it's not the way we would do it. We wouldn't do it the way. We, we, it's, it's the Son of God. The Son of God who comes to us to redeem. Demas, the Son of God, who, because he's God, has all power, and he could get us out of slavery in any way that he wants. Right? If if you were enslaved, right, or let's say you were kidnapped, and the person who, who loves you the most also has every possible way to free you from being kidnapped. They could have gotten an army, a mercenaries. They could have, they could have you know, gone in themselves, gone all Rambo on them, whatever. They could have done it in any way possible. They could have paid whatever price. What's it going to take? million dollars, two million dollars, four million dollars, whatever. They could have paid whatever price. But instead of doing that, they, they go and take your place. They go and take your place. They don't die for you because of a failed rescue attempt. They go and take your place. It doesn't make sense for the all-powerful God of the universe to just come and take our place. It's not how we would do it. Well, the second thing we see here is that God's plan requires love trust, and obedience. And we see that from Ruth to Naomi for sure, where Ruth loves, trusts, and obeys Naomi. And it says that, you know, she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. So Ruth is willing to take this risk, this thing that could at at minimum, just be really embarrassing. You know, where Boaz could have thing like, you know, I don't think of you this way. I think of you more like a good friend, you know, or something like that. You know, he could have been like, did I send you the wrong signals here or whatever? He, he could have said so many things to her. Plus, you know, there's, like you said, they're not alone. There's other people there. You get you some idea that it's really dark because... You know, Boaz has to ask, you know, who are you? But Ruth, Ruth does this. She, she does this. She obeys Naomi. And what Ruth is pictured as here, and we talked about this word before, she's pictured as a showing that covenant love, the hesed, the covenant love, the loving, often translated loving kindness. And she's shown as, as showing that. And what's remarkable about it is she's not even ethnically an Israelite. And yet she is showing that covenant love in ways that probably most Israelites wouldn't have done. And it, it's, it's interesting because she does it. And she does it, at least from the text, like there's no question. It's like, okay. You know, know me. That's what you want me to do. I'm going to do it. And so what we see is not just this, this love and this trust that's required. It's this act of faith. When, if, if, if we're going to follow God, one thing we have to understand is there is nothing from a worldly standpoint that's guaranteed If it's God's plan, it's God's plan, but there's nothing guaranteed that you will be successful. Not in a worldly sense. There's nothing guaranteed. You obey because it's God's plan. And you have faith. And you don't obey because you think somehow it's all gonna turn out in the end. You don't obey because you think God is somehow gonna make you wildly successful. This is why applying Christian principles to business are not always, you know, that, that great if your thinking is, if I apply these principles, God will make my business prosper financially in an earthly sense. No, it won't. There's no promise of that. You apply biblical principles and godly principles to your business because you're a believer in Christ and you want to do things God's way, whether they turn out financially beneficial to you or not you do it because it's right so she, she does this act of faith it's risky it's uncertain and she does it she takes a risk and that last thing there that she says spread your wings over your servant it's interesting, first of all, that was a way of talking about what the husband's role was in marriage. It means to protect, okay? So, so that, that she, was asking, she was asking him in those words to be her husband. Again, you know, Now, when we were growing up, or when I was growing up, and maybe some of you, that would have even been kind of odd in that day. It was always the guy asked, you know, propose to the woman. It would have been kind of unusual even in our time for the woman to propose to, you know, to the man. But nowadays, you know, I hear it, Happens both ways, you know, and you know, it's a changing culture, but in this time, it's crazy. She's asking him to marry her, and that's what's that's again, it's what's in that phrase. But notice she's not presumptuous about it, what she calls herself. You know, he's called her like, you know, my daughter. You know, he's talked to her that way. But she calls herself his servant. She's not presumptuous. She knows who she is in their, in their social order. She knows what she's asking him. And she's not trying to, like, you know, uh, kind of market herself in such a way that, that, you know, that, hey, Boaz, you know, this is why you should do it it's because i'm awesome you know like no i'm your servant in in a sense she's saying she's saying what's what's true i have no right to ask this of you no right whatsoever and that's how it's presented to us it's not presented to us in, in any way that she knows what the answer will be and again there's all this dynamic young woman foreign servant asking this israelite man respected man older man to marry her well what is boaz's response boaz says in verse 10 may you be blessed by the lord my daughter you have made this last kindness But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So Boaz's response, I, I think the way it's presented, because for us, it's shocking, right? Because we expect the response to either be like, no, crazy girl, go away. Or, yes, oh, thank you. You know, all this, you know, tension between us is now resolved. You know, I'm so glad you did it because... Apparently, Boaz, you know, got tongue tighter on women. I don't know why he didn't say, you know, whatever before, right? But, but it's like, oh, that's, that's one of the two outcomes. But no, it's not. Boaz says, I would love to marry you. But there's something higher than us. There's this, this law, this covenant that we're in. And according to the covenant, there's someone else. No matter what I want, no matter what you want, no matter what we think is best and makes sense, there is someone else, according to our laws and our covenant, that has f- first claim. And I'm going to follow it. I'm going to follow it. And now Boaz is taking the risk. Boaz is the one now who's, who's, who's now saying like, because he obviously wants this. But he's saying no. It's an act of faith. I'm going to honor the covenant not knowing how it's going to turn out. Not knowing what that other kinsman is going to say. I don't know. But I'm going to do it. I'm not going to you know, suddenly violate the covenant with God just because now it's going to make my life better. Nope going to follow and so he does what is honorable and right see that's God's plan God's plan is 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 always that we would not have to accomplish his plan by doing something that's that's evil to accomplish his plan we we we, we have, we're not we don't do something dishonorable no we do what is honorable and we do what is right that's always part of God's plan There's never this sense in Christianity that the ends justify the means. I've heard Christians say this, and when Christians say this, especially pastors and leaders say this, it makes me cringe, but it's when they say like, you know, it's easier to ask for forgiveness than permission. What they're basically saying is, I'm going to do whatever I want, even though it could be, and I probably think it is wrong, but I'm going to do it anyways, Because I want to do it, and this is what I think is right. Because later on, I go, hey, 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 sorry. It's it's not right. Boaz doesn't do that. Boaz doesn't say, like, look, 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 we'll get married on the down low. And then, you know, after a couple years, ah, then we'll let everybody know, oh, yeah, 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 sorry, we didn't know about Uncle So-and-So. And we'll bring it up then. And then we'll say, hey, hey, sorry, sorry, sorry. I'll throw in, I'll give him a few sheep, give him some land, he'll be happy. No. Does it the right way. He does it the honorable way. He does it in the way that follows the covenant. And this is what we see on the cross, by the way. Remember, Jesus is the Son of God, the most powerful being of all. And instead of using power to redeem us, instead of using power to conquer evil, he dies. He pays the penalty. He declares God's judgment upon us as right because he pays the penalty. Because if Jesus had won the day through his power, He would have forever said, this is the way forward. The most powerful, the most powerful are the ones who are the most right. Instead, he surrenders, he sacrifices, he shows love. And because of that, he forever says, this is the way. Not the way of power, but the way of love. And so we read this last part where he says, he said, bring your, uh, he said, bring the garment you're wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me for he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. And we see this, this truth that Boaz understands. Boaz understands Naomi's role. And Boaz believes that you know, this, this is what God wants, but he sees that God is working through his people. Boaz acknowledges Naomi's role. He sees that she's faithful. She sees that that she's been obedient. She sees what Ruth has done in terms of taking this risk and being faithful and obedient. And now he acknowledges that. He gives this grain um, to, to to thank her in a way and really to kind of seal the message of I plan to marry her. I will redeem her but I'm going to do it according to God's law, God's way. And see, for Naomi, there's hope. Remember, she's been cut off from her people. She's been cut off. Her family, her line is cut off from the people of Israel. She's on her own. She's lost. She's separate. And Boaz is the way back. Boaz is the way that she comes from this place of being lost and saying, when I die, my line dies. My family dies. We are no longer going to be in the history or the memory of God's people. It's over. And now it's going to be restored. it be restored through, through Boaz. Let me just tell you, this is what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to take us. We we were cut off. We're separate from God's people. We're separate from God. We're we're no longer apart. And we were that way from from when we were born. We didn't just start out, you know, everything was cool and and then, you know, made a mistake along the way. No. That's what our destiny is, is to be completely separated from God and from his people, outside the kingdom. And Jesus becomes our Redeemer. Jesus is the one who says, This is the way back. It's not an accident. The New Testament calls us the bride of Christ. It's tying into this idea of the, of the kinsman redeemer. And so he becomes like us in the incarnation. He becomes like us where where the word becomes flesh. So in that sense, he's our kinsman. And then on the cross, he becomes our redeemer. Some of you know this. Some of you have accepted this. Some of you don't. Some of you are still living separate, isolated, cut off from God and cut off from the people of God. And if you are someone who knows this redemption, I'm going to read a few Bible verses. And I hope these Bible verses tell you something. I'm not going to talk about them. I'm just going to read them. And my prayer is that this renews in you this this great gift, this great act that that you've already received. And that strengthens you because of it. But for some of you, you're still like how Naomi felt. You're cut off. You don't feel connected to God. You don't feel connected to His people. You're outside. I want you to listen to God's word, and I want you to, to know that there is a way. There is a kinsman redeemer, and His name is Jesus. In Titus 2, 11 through 14, these aren't on the screen, okay? I just want you to listen. Titus 2, 11 through 14. for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. The idea of redemption is that we're bought out of our slavery, our slavery to sin. But it's more than we're just bought out of slavery to sin. It's also that, that through that we are reconciled to God. In Romans 5, 6 through 10, listen to this. It says, for while we were still weak, Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And finally, in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoptions as sons, And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God.